This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code WEEDS at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This week's episode of The Weeds is also sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com weeds and get started today. The following podcast contains explicit language. If you really want to understand what the Cold War was about... Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox.com's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, here with me, as always, are my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Hey, Matt. Hey. We got a great episode ready to go for you. We talk a lot about policy, uh, but obviously that's inextricably bound up with politics. And, you know, politics is uh, it's important, but it's a, it's a sort of problematic for the human mind. It makes you dumb. Dumb. The, the main thing I want to do here today is accuse both of you of being stupid on this podcast and me. Um, I, I don't, wait, wait, wait. I didn't <laughs> sign up for that. That's why we try to focus on the policy so right. we stay smart. So what I want to talk about here a bit is something that is an obsession of mine, which is how do people with strong political opinions reason? How do they absorb new information? How do they, they think about things? This is basically the most depressing vein of research you can possibly tap into if you do the kind of work that I do or the, that we do, because there are two really big concepts in this area, and they're both really well proven, and they're both really pessimistic in terms of what they imply for how we all act when we hear political information. The first big one is motivated reasoning. We have this kind of post-enlightenment idea of the human mind as the way we think being a search for truth, being a search for the best information. But when you test people, it turns out that the way people think is much more motivated than that, that they push themselves to find the answers they want to have. The research in this goes all the way back to the early 20th century. There was great research out of Stanford where they would give students sort of an op-ed making the case for the death penalty and making the case against it. And in both cases, the op-ed had exactly the same information, but the conclusions were flipped. So in one variant of the op-ed, it would show these studies showing the death penalty didn't help. In the other variant of the op-ed, it would have the same studies, but now they would show the death penalty did help. And what they found, and this has been replicated time and time and time and time again after that, is that if you were someone who believed in the death penalty and you got the pro-death penalty op-ed, you would look at that and be like, that is a very convincing piece of work. The evidence is good. The argument is logical and strong. And if you got the anti-death penalty op-ed, you would turn your sort of considerable intelligence towards all the reasons that op-ed shouldn't be believed. The evidence was no good. The studies weren't good. The argument didn't hold up. But it was the exact same structure. And this has been replicated again and again and again. And the nearer you get to politics, the more powerful it becomes. There's a great term by a guy named Dan Kahan at Yale Law School who does a lot of studies in this area. And the term is called identity protective cognition. And the basic idea is that within American politics, the way most of us experience it is as a form of identity. Being a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative is an identity no less powerful and, in fact, probably more powerful than being a Yankees fan or a Mets fan or someone who loves a certain television show. And when we 
interact with political information, we do so from the perspective of trying to protect our identity, trying to protect our idea of who we are and our idea of who we like. Because it's in fact very painful as a human being who's evolved to be part of social group structures to feel at odds with your group. The really interesting twist on this research in recent years is that one of the longtime ideas of how to fix this problem is education, that if we were just more informed, if we just had a smarter electorate, that they would have so much understanding of the issues that they would not fall prey to this kind of motivated thinking. But what we found is that the smarter you are, actually, the more likely you are to fool yourself. The smarter you are, the better you are at finding the information you need to convince yourself of whatever it is that you want to believe. And Kahan has done a lot of these studies and just, again, finds that, for instance, if you know a lot about science, you are much better able to convince yourself of why global warming is real or it is fake. If you know a lot about American politics, you're better able to convince yourself that to go to a real study here. Republicans who were very high information were more likely to believe Bill Clinton had increased the deficit. Democrats who were very high information were more likely to believe that Ronald Reagan had increased inflation. These things just weren't true. It bears very powerfully on the kinds of things we talk about here. We have these sort of long discussions about policy and about policy information. But before we have those discussions, we are seeking out sources of information. And we are reading these studies and trying to decide what we think is true and what we think is credible and what we think is valid and what we are going to absorb into our kind of mental understanding. But all the evidence we have suggests that we are not doing that in a straightforward searching for the truth manner, that we are doing it in ways we don't even know is happening that are built to protect our standing within our groups, that are built to protect what we already believe and who we already think we are. If you do what we do, I think it's scary both in terms of how good of a job are we doing for the audience, but also what is the audience doing when they come to us, right? Are they really trying to come and get good political and policy information, or are they just coming to hear their own opinions reflected back at them? Well, and I think that's especially something that is sort of in front of our eyes in this era of, of social media distribution, right? right? As it's become more and more common that the way people find stories is typically now through social media. And the way the social networks work is that they're recommendation engines. So you are specifically likely to see things that people who are similar to you had a positive response to. And it means, you know, on the one hand, as a reader, that you are sort of more than ever in this kind of zone of good vibes from like-minded people, right. but also that as publishers, you really have to think when you have a story, if you want a lot of people to see it, you have to think, well, what kinds of feelings could this story possibly inspire in people? And what kinds of framings of the story are likely to trigger that? And do we have the right kind of audience such that unleashing that feelings cascade is going to get it in front of a lot of people? And sometimes, you know, I, I see things, events in the world or studies that they seem interesting to me, but they don't have an obvious takeaway. I sit there and I think about it and I'm like, I don't know. This is good. It's interesting. It's worth chewing over, but it doesn't make me feel awesome. And it also doesn't make me feel outraged. It's just <laughs> kind of there. And I know it's very challenging as just like a practical media matter to make a story like that work. Yeah. One of my favorite studies I've seen on this, I think a lot of this actually came up very tangibly with vaccines over the past few years and how people think right. about vaccines. And there's this amazing study that Brendan Nyhan at Dartmouth. Am I getting that yep. right? Okay, awesome. Um, Hi, Brendan. Uh, hey, how's it going? <laughs> Hopefully you're listening. 
And he did this amazing study where he looked at how people respond to messages about vaccine safety, about these CDC messages. And he found, I thought this was incredible, this backfire effect where he found, for example, the CDC has a message about vaccines and autism saying in very scientific, straightforward terms, you know, vaccines don't cause autism. And he found when this message was delivered to people who already had negative feelings on vaccines, their negative feelings got stronger. And it was interesting to see this, like, the kind of toolbox you'd think of to have this discussion, just each tool not working. So like CDC scientific messages not working. Another thing was actually showing people pictures of kids with measles. That also strengthened the backlash where people seem to like think about, oh, the kid looks really sick. I hope they don't get sick from a vaccine. I'm against vaccines. Right. It fits into this body of research. And it's just like such a surprising finding and a hard thing to take into account as like a health journalist writing about these and things. And you can go even further with that. There's a great study that Emily Thorson, who's a political scientist at Boston University now, a friend of Matt and mine, did. And she had this great study where she showed what happened when you took people who believed something wrong and you disproved it to them. So I'm going to make up an example here. I don't remember the examples in the study, but let's imagine you had somebody who believed Barack Obama was born in Kenya. And you somehow gave them information where they were ready at the end of it to say, OK, I was wrong about that. What she finds is that a certain amount of the emotional consequence of the original belief persists. So she calls it belief echoes. So if you believe something terrible about a politician or about a political party and I disprove it to you, I might be able to get you to say, OK, it is not the case that Republicans are doing something terrible or not the case that Democrats are doing something terrible. But the emotional anger you have about having believed that in the first place doesn't go away. So your feelings towards the Republican and Democratic Party are still more negative, even though the cause of those negative feelings has now been disproven to you. And it's another example of how information, even when you can get it to work, doesn't quite work because a lot of this is happening at a level sort of deeper than conscious thought. And, you know, a, a weird sort of example of this that's been present in the, in the culture lately is this this movie Truth that's come out, right? It's an adaptation of, of Mary Mapes's book about her work with Dan Rather on this huge investigative scoop proving that George W. Bush went AWOL from the National Guard, uh, except they didn't prove that at all. And it turns out it was based on a rather sort of crude forged document. But she published this odd defensive book about herself in which the psychological trauma of being the victim of this like incredible right wing get you squad mm -hmm. retroactively justified having done this story because it shows that they were bad people all along. And you read, you know, reviews of this movie and people keep being puzzled. You're like, you know, this is like an interesting story about journalism gone awry, but it's completely made with the emotional impact of like they were right to do this because they're taking on all these bad, mean meanies. And it's like you, you can see that like there's a certain number of people who got like invested in this conflict, of course, just because these documents were, were bad or something, you're not going to change your entire political ideology over, right? So it's like to reintegrate, if you go through this intense, difficult battle with people who are on the other side of you for deep, profound reasons of principle, it's just so hard emotionally to come away from that and be like, you know what? I just had this one thing wrong. But like, I'm still right on the whole, because you still think you're right on the whole. So you want to hold on to every bit of the struggle. 
Right. And the mechanisms of this are really important. You talked about the, the social media sphere, but Google is a big part of this too. When you want to know a certain thing, you can just search for that thing. So let's say you read a study that you don't like that is showing you, I don't know, that Obamacare premiums are going down. You can search Obamacare premiums going up or vice versa. If you read something you don't like about Obamacare premiums are going up, you can search Obamacare premiums going down. And one of the things that I think people really underrate about the sort of modern world is that there tends to be enough information to believe anything you might like to believe. How you see the world is not just about what is true about it, but which true things you choose to put in which order. So, you know, I can tell a story of Barack Obama being really good for the American economy, and I can tell a story of Barack Obama being really bad for the American economy, and I can tell a story of Barack Obama not really mattering that much for the American economy because U.S. presidency is overrated. And all of these stories I can make very convincing. It's a very profound thing to think about. The debate is an extracurricular activity in high school and college. Debate is a skill. The fact that you can make a good argument that is persuasive to people does not mean you're right. It is something you learn how to do. It is a, it is a hobby. And so what's going to end up being persuasive is which of those cases you already want to believe. And the thing that I think Kahan is really smart about in, in his work is he argues that it is irrational for people to change their minds quite often. If you live in a small evangelical town, or you live in a small conservative evangelical town, or you live in a very liberal urban center, and in the small evangelical town, everybody thinks global warming is a terrible plot, and in the big urban center, everybody thinks gay marriage is an obvious civil rights. In either one of those cases, to change your mind and put yourself at odds with your group, with your friends, it's a really big deal. It's a really personally painful thing to do. It makes people hate you. It leads to you not being invited to things. It leads to very difficult conversations with people you care about. It forces you to think constantly, why do I think that I'm smarter than all these people who I admire and I respect? And he basically argues for any individual person, their view on gay marriage, their view on climate change, their view, their view on any political and policy issue you might come up with, it just isn't going to change anything. It isn't going to change a cap-and-trade bill. It isn't going to change unless you're a Supreme Court justice who can get married and cannot. So on some level, it is actually rational for your brain to be trying to privilege your standing within your group over your abstract correctness on the issues. Right, and right right now with the internet, like it's so easy to find like that group. So one of the things, like let's say you're in the evangelical small town or the urban center and you do have a different view but like you feel very strongly about that you can find online like your right. group of people it's easier to reinforce that one of the things i've seen like covering obamacare for a long time it is like you were saying completely possible to live in a world where obamacare is you know an epic disaster where the premiums rise year after year and where networks are getting smaller. And that's a story that exists. That's a story that's true about Obamacare. And then you can live in a world where Obamacare has increased insurance for millions of people, where more people have access to care. And for the first time in decades, the uninsured rate is dropping. And it's so easy to find both of those worlds. And they exist here, but in very separate what, places. What amazes me so much recently with Obamacare is, so I began covering the bill that became Obamacare in 2008 when Max Baucus, who was in the Senate finance well, chairman. This is like, his, Ezra's like the Obamacare hipster. <laughs> I was there before was it was Obamacare. Obamacare before you knew it was Obamacare. Yeah. But so Bacchus there were, care. right, Baucus care. So there were, might um, not have heard of it. There were, 
they're all these people. I wasn't the only one. There were a lot of folks who have been covering the healthcare thing from the very beginning. And we covered it for a very long time when it was abstract, right? At that point, when you're dealing with Max Bacchus's white paper or the draft bill that became the Affordable Care Act, people were simply arguing to some degree from first principles, did they think this would work? If you implemented, did they think it would do a good job? And then we actually did implement it, right? And it, all these things actually did happen. So we did cover a lot of people. Networks really did get narrower. Um, premiums were lower than expected, but are nevertheless going up there. There's all this information we now have that we didn't have when we were initially covering it. But I don't know anyone in that debate whose mind has been changed by the information. Well, I can't say there's yeah, one person you... that I know of who their view of Obamacare, after we have all the information from implementing it now for years, is different than their view the day before it was implemented. And I think that's a, a startling thing. Actually. Right. And our website, Vox.com, we did a poll on the and when was it, like March or April, yeah. five-year anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. And we asked people, you know, has your opinion of the ACA changed? And pretty much everyone said no. And, and you know, I think there was this optimism on the part of the law supporters, you know, oh, it'll get implemented. People will see Yeah, people. we have to pass the law we to have, see what it says. Yeah, and, and there's kind of this theory that it'll get more popular after it passes and people actually start using insurance. I'll find the poll and put it in the show notes. If you break out the people who are actually using Obamacare... You know, you sort them by political affiliation. Even the people who are using it, who oppose Obamacare, think it's like a bad law while they are getting insurance from it. And it, it just speaks to, you know, the kind of framework we started this off about how difficult it is literally when people are using the law to change minds about how it works. So here's a, a question that I have about this whole line of research, though, is how closely related is it to the particular circumstances of American politics? Because the United States is, is a little bit odd in that we have two political parties who between them occupy like the vast majority of the relevant space. But they're also very distinct, right? They, they don't pursue a, a median voter strategy the way they did in 1960 or the way like the Irish political parties do, where they, you know, you sort of like go after the centrist voter really, really hard. And so in most places where you look, right, you will find like in, in Canada, three big political parties or in, in Denmark, I think there's nine. And so it seems to me that in that kind of system where either the parties are closer together ideologically or there's just more fragmentation of the political space, the same psychological dynamics would be in play, but that they probably wouldn't have the same impact, right? Because people are not, expecting like a single team to win really clear political victories. But the, the U.S. kind of creates a real world stakes in these elections that are kind of higher and a little bit artificially high. Like it's a bit of a mystery to me in some ways, like why the parties put forward such wildly different policy agendas when you would think, you know, you would like try to win by, by shaving the differences. So what one possibility is that some of this is generated by the nature of American politics. The other is that the exact same mechanism is in play elsewhere, but is more toxic inside the United States. But that, you know, we can't sort of like reform people by saying, well, we'll have information, everyone will be smart, but we can design systems that work well. And we happen to have a system that's like a constant sports fans looking at a disputed call. Right. I, I, I think it's a great question. I would love to see cross-national comparisons on this kind of thing. My 
gut is that it really just depends issue to issue because how bad – let me make the argument that this is actually not bad for a minute because I think sometimes when you talk to political scientists, they will look at this research and they will say, yes, and so what? Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that they would say about it is, OK, there is a tremendously limited amount that we can know about the world with firsthand knowledge. Pretty much everything we think, not just about American politics, but about everything is coming far, 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 far from the source. I will routinely take Advil, but I have never myself conducted any double-blind, randomized, controlled trials about whether or not Advil works. Right. So people rely on on People rely on mediating – on heuristics, on mediating authorities, on all these different kinds of things. And having chosen mediating authorities, right, what what a political party is basically is a way of – shortcutting a lot of information as a way of sort of choosing people who in theory have your values, who have time and information that you don't have to make decisions about whether the Iran deal is a good idea or whether a health care bill is a good health care bill and kind of outsourcing a lot of that work to them. But that's actually but why I think it's bad. But, but what a political scientist would say on this is that it should not be the case that deeply held political opinions are easy to dislodge. If we could be blown by the wind so easily by just reading some New York Times article that disagreed with all of our priors and we would flip our thinking like that, that would not actually be a better world. That would be a very weird world. And it is a good thing and it is a natural thing and it is a reasonable thing that people hold on very tightly to the ideas they've spent a, a large amount of time believing. They, sure, there might be some bad ways it's done and then people might end up you know, going really deep down into the wrong alleys. But nevertheless, the, the alternative is actually worse. This idea that everybody should just flip their minds every time they see some contrary information from a seemingly credible source, it, it would be a ridiculous way to live. Right. But th- this is actually why I think it is so odd to have just two big bundles of beliefs, right? right? Because there's something strange about living in a society where if you go to church and you take it very seriously and you really strongly feel that abortion is murder, that changing the definition of marriage will be toxic to society, and maybe you also know a lot of people who are gun enthusiasts and that's a really important part of their culture, that that also commits you very rigidly to like a whole host of positions about the impact of carbon dioxide emissions on the climate, about the impact of marginal tax rates and economic growth, right? It's a huge bundle. And then to be a Democrat in good standing, right? If you're worried about global warming and you believe in LGBT equality and you believe the government should do more to help poor people, you're like also, also supposed to believe now that a $15 an hour minimum wage empirically will have no negative impact right. on employment, <laughs> which I it's I don't know, it, but it seems wrong And that comprehensive me. immigration reform yeah. is a good right. idea. Right. And so like I believe many of these things, but there's like a, a lack of any kind of space for comfort and trust, but to have some set of diversity or acknowledgement that there are many subjects in the world. And the United States is a really big and really diverse country, right, with all kinds of people. And it seems to me that the institutional but also social but also psychological mechanisms working to, like, compress us all into 
two competing teams for 330 million people when much smaller countries manage to have five, six, 11 kinds of teams that you can identify with is, is really weird. And it produces some very unproductive practical politics. So one of the things I think about, so Ezra wrote this long piece about this, that when we launched Vox, um, that we will also put in show notes, but kind of what it means not to bring it all back to us, but like for the work that we're doing. So all of us, you know, do like a lot of explanatory journalism. Like I just spent two weeks trying to understand the relationship between wages and between wages and health premiums and like really trying to be like, okay, this is what I've got. Like this is like what I think the relationship exists. And then I think about these studies and kind of the work that I'm doing and how it fits into the discourse and, you know, is everything we're doing just doomed to be used in this sort of filter? And I'm curious how you guys as fellow writers at Vox and, you know, you wrote this on the day that we launched that, like, no one will – I'm going to explain the fact that no one will ever change anyone's opinion. Here's our explanatory journalism That was a statement of 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 a certain kind. I think the first question this will lead you to if you're thinking about what we do is, okay, first, how do I try myself not to be the problem? Which is not to say I'm not the problem, right? Because all these dynamics right. are very powerful with, with me as well. But I have kind of taken a couple things away from this in the way that sort of I see and, and try to learn about the world. One, and it's a very big one in my understanding of Washington, is that cynicism is a really overused explanation for why people do what they do. And it is, it is a very deep thrum behind a lot of the ways journalists approach politicians that they are continuously cynically changing their opinion to things they don't really believe, that different people, when they flip-flop, the whole idea of gotcha questions. Anderson Cooper at the first Democratic debate saying to Hillary Clinton... That's, that's a different topic. <laughs> but what I think is important about it, one of the places where I thought a lot about this was in the individual mandate, Mm -hmm. where you had a lot of Republicans who co-sponsored bills with the individual mandate in the 90s and then 2000s, and then frankly even had a co-sponsorship of bills with an individual mandate like the Wyden-Bennett bill, even while Obamacare was going through, even as every single one of them voted to argue the individual mandate was unconstitutional. This was a Republican idea that Republicans turned on completely. One way of telling this was that it was completely cynical. They knew what they were doing. They knew the individual mandate was perfectly constitutional. They had believed it was a good idea, and they just thought it was a vulnerability in Obamacare, and they were just going to say what they had to say to expose that vulnerability. I spoke with a lot of them about this. I spoke with a lot of people who I respect who are critical of Obamacare. And I just don't think it was cynical at all. I think that we are very good at convincing ourselves of what we need to believe, even if that is a 180-degree reversion from the thing we believed a couple of days before. And so one thing that I try really not to do is ever assume cynicism. And and I I found that's actually really helpful just in understanding what's going on, because I think that that you should always try to uh, understand people as having figured out a way to convince themselves of what they believe. And so simply calling out their cynicism is not going to get you anywhere. The second thing that I think is important here, and it, it sort of has two dimensions to it. One is to be careful around the degree to which you ever let yourself imagine yourself as belonging to a team, right? The degree which you say to yourself, I'm a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative. There are all kinds of reasons people label themselves or don't label themselves. But one reason that I try to not mentally think of myself as, as belonging to a group isn't because my positions don't put me anywhere. I think my positions pretty clearly put me center left, at least right now. But it's because I think it creates a really bad set of mental 
processes where you begin to think, okay, this is my team. These are the people I listen to. These are the people I trust and agree with. And so these are the people whose kind of informational flows I'm going to accept. And I think that's one way you get into a lot of trouble. The other one is that when when you are watching sort of how some of this plays out in the real world, you need to look for people who have different opinions in you, but share a lot of the same characteristics as you. I think one takeaway of a lot of this research is that the way people often change their mind is they need the information to come from people they respect. They need validators. They need people they already trust to bring them this sort of contrary points of view. And so I really try to look for people who, on the one hand, I don't agree with about a lot of things, but on the other hand, I feel very culturally similar to. I feel that, you know, I respect them, that they look at things very empirically, that for all kinds of reasons, they're, they're people who I, who I can kind of hear them disagreeing with me and take it very seriously. And I have a kind of list of those people and I try to stay very up on their writing because I feel like that's a good check. There are people who, when we disagree sharply on something, for all kinds of reasons, I tend to take their disagreement very seriously as opposed to chalking it up to them, you know, just being wrong or not having good information or whatever. Which isn't to say that I've in any way staunched these tendencies in myself. It's just, I think these are things on the margins that help mm -hmm. with it. All right, maybe... Uh take a break for a sponsor, and then we can uh, talk uh, after the break about a, a study that I am having difficulty assimilating into my, <laughs> my partisan and ideological worldview. <laughs> this week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Squarespace. Uh, I remember I, I used to have a, a website, MatthewIglesias.com, that I sort of built by hand uh, in the old days of the internet, and it was pretty good. I, I liked it, but it, it was really hard work. And then one day... My whole domain got sort of stolen by Russian spam scam artists, and they, they told me I would have to pay them $100,000 to, to get it back. And it, it turned out that a, a much cheaper and easier solution was to go to Squarespace. I, I did it. It's great. Mostly it was just easy, and it made me feel like an idiot for all the hard work I used to put into websites. You know, so you could do it yourself. The sites look professionally designed. Uh, you don't need to know any coding. If you do know how to do a little coding, you can put it in there. It's super intuitive. You know, what you see is what you get. You click here, you click there, you drag this. And if you sign up for a full year, you will even get a free domain of your own. So, uh, you know, that's a, a great option. You can start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. If you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use offer code WEEDS to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Before we, we get on to our, our thrilling paper of the week, the, the sort of political controversy— It's literally life or death, our paper of the it week. It is. It is life no, but, or— Yeah. And soon for, for, for us. But, um, <laughs> Whoa, if true. Yeah. So the, Not for you. The, the thing okay. people are talking about in, in politics this week is, is Republicans spent most of the CNBC debate, it seemed to me, arguing with the moderators rather than really arguing with each other. And then after the debate, there was like a surge of commentary— from conservatives about, you know, there was bias, it was unfair, the Republicans were going to get together and sort of form some kind of candidate's cartel and demand a change in how the debates were run. Then it turned out, it seemed like after they had the meeting, it all occurred to them that the point of the primary is for one of them to win and the others to lose. So they can't, <laughs> they can't really form an effective cartel. And so one after another, a bunch of people defected. I think so six people are now off it. And it looks like maybe nothing will happen. But the general ill will and the sense that the CNBC guys were like out to get them and unfair is sticking around. And 
On one level, I think that's really a sort of a bullshit complaint. I mean, for one thing, if you've ever actually watched CNBC, I mean, as you would expect, America's leading business news channel is not like relentlessly hostile to conservative worldview. But also, I think conservatives often substitute conspiracy theory accounts of what's happening in the media for basic market accounts. And to me, where these debates go wrong is that you have moderators who have a chance to like like be on stage in a high profile time when more people are watching them than usual. And they try to make themselves into the star of the show by taking these big windups with their questions and delivering huge punches as if what they're hoping is that the candidate is going to just melt down and collapse under the weight of their awesome question that has often built in all kinds of sort of hostile framing and, and negativity. And that's their theory of how they are going to make a big impression and create a big story out of it. And I think that you, what you keep seeing in these debates, you saw it in the CNBC debate, but you saw it in a lot of them, is that you know politicians are pretty good at politics. They just argue back with the moderators when they get argumentative questions. And that everyone, to the point of what we were talking about before, everyone just kind of goes back to their corners, right? That if you ask Bernie Sanders, aren't you an unelectable socialist because socialism is terrible? And then he delivers back and was like, no, actually, socialism's great. I mean, great things by it. Denmark is great. We're all great. You know, a conservative listens to that and is like, yeah, no, I, I still don't like this guy. But a liberal listens to it and he's like, yeah, that sounds right. Anderson Cooper is just attacking liberalism. And Bernie Sanders is standing up for my side. So I, I still like Bernie Sanders. And, and nothing is really achieved. And I think that when you see politicians who have gone really astray in, in sort of interviews, it often comes in response to easy questions. Like when Sarah Palin was asked, what does she read to learn about the world? She didn't have a good answer. It was a sort of a softball question. You know, it was like on a par with like, where do you get ice cream? Right. Right. She wasn't able to attack the premise. Whereas if, if Katie Couric, who's really good at this, if, if she had approached this the way a lot of debate moderators do, she would have been like, so-and-so and so-and-so and and this other editorial (laughs) all say that you're not prepared, that you're not well-informed enough. You said this thing the other day that sounded uninformed to me. Doesn't this prove that the American people can't trust you to keep up to speed on the news? Do you even read anything? (laughs) You know, Sarah Palin, who is actually good at politics, she could have demolished that question by saying, this is the typical condescending liberal elite media blah, blah, blah. And no one would have noticed that in three minutes of yelling back at Katie Couric, she hadn't actually named anything that she reads, right? And so I would just like love to see in these debates, honestly, easier, simple questions that ideally you would just raise something that the candidates haven't been talking about, but just say like, Hillary Clinton, what do you think about Brazil? But like in a way, they aren't those. I think about Brazil. (laughs) Brazil's great. I say Uh as a Brazilian. If you think about it, though, they're they're smaller questions. They're simpler questions. You you know wrote a post about this. Like, how much is it appropriate to increase or decrease spending? They're simple, but they're also like not easy in a way because they're so big. Yeah. What do you think about Brazil? (laughs) 
<laughs> I've never been to Brazil. God, I have so like... many thoughts. Could somebody just ask me what I think about Brazil? No, no, there no, no. You, you know too. No, we're going to ask you. We're going to bring up some really negative things about Brazil and then be like, how could you possibly defend Brazil? Can Fox readers trust a half Brazilian karaoke? <laughs> it's all coming out. <laughs> but like these like big questions, so, like this is a very different context, but I've been interviewing a lot of interns for Vox right now. And I find the questions that's hardest to answer, you know, are these like big questions. Like when I ask them to tell me about very specific moments, you know, they can usually deliver. But if you ask like this big question of like, why do you want to be in journalism? Like what interests you about this field? Those are the ones that, and you kind of think about it yourself, that these are the questions we think of as like so-called softballs can often be the ones that are more challenging to answer. I also just think it is about what are you trying to achieve in an interview? So I've had you know the good fortune to interview a lot of different politicians. I've interviewed Paul Ryan and Bernie Sanders and Obama and, and a number of these folks. And when I go into it, I always think that the thing I'm trying to show is how do they think and reason, right? I am not going to I am not smart enough or good enough at this to catch him in some kind of tremendous gotcha where they're going to collapse and begin, you know, tears streaming down their face. But also I kind of don't care that much to do that. I mean, I think a lot of this gotcha stuff actually just for all the sincerity reasons I was saying earlier just tells you less than other people think it does. And so what I'm often really interested in doing is trying to see how do these politicians or policymakers think about this debate or how do they think about new policy information. So I remember I was thinking about how to ask questions of, I've talked to both Ryan and Obama about healthcare, and both of them asked kind of pretty similar questions that were not about individual policies, but were about sort of healthcare pricing in America. Because I was really interested to know, first, were they aware of the research and, and the debate around healthcare pricing? And two, how did they think about it in terms of their plans? And I don't think those questions are easier. I'm not sure they're always harder. What I think they do, though, is they expose different strengths and weaknesses in sort of traditional gotcha questions. What they do, I think, is they really will let you see over an extended period of time, is a politician thinking about this? Are they able to give you an answer that has texture? Or is it clear they've never thought about this before? They either have never dealt with the issue before or they've been outsourcing it to staff. And so in terms of what I think we're trying to do in these interviews, in these debates, which is give the American people an idea of what these folks would be like as president, it is simply not the case that as president, Hillary Clinton's top advisor is going to come into the room and say, Hillary Clinton, you used to believe X on TPP. Now you believe Y. Will you say anything to get elected? That's like never going to happen in the Oval Office. What is going to happen is somebody's going to come to Hillary Clinton and say, do you think the pharmaceutical provisions in TPP are a big enough reason to oppose the trade deal? And if so, why? And so I just think these kinds of questions where you actually present them with the sort of topic they're really going to face and ask them to explain what they think about it and how they think about it, it's just it's much more relevant to the job we're fundamentally interviewing them for. Yeah. But I, I also just think, though, there's a certain amount of like unrealism about it. Like I remember when when I got to interview President Obama. I took very much the approach that I'm advocating here with all the questions, but I had this cunning plan which, <laughs> for my for my one gotcha. And I thought I was going to really, I was going to make news with this and it was going to be awesome. And it was that if Obama somewhere in the course of our ruminating conversation about America's role in the world 
if he said something about how it's important to boost foreign aid to low-income countries, I was going to come at him with this unexpected left jab and ask him why the biggest recipient of American aid is Israel, which is not poor. And I was thinking this was going to be great because people are used to getting tough questions about Israel with this framing that's around the Palestinian conflict and blah, 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 not this kind of just aid policy question. I thought this was a good plan, and I didn't know if it was going to happen. And Obama, he like he stumbled right into my trap. He started talking about how we need to be doing more to help Costa Rica. We need to be doing more to help the Philippines. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go for it. And he he batted that weak shit aside. Like it, was, <laughs> like it was child's play, you know? Because, I don't know, he's the fucking president of the United States. Like, he's just, he's pretty good at this. And the takeaway I learned from that was just like, my value add in the world is just not going to be going toe-to-toe with star politicians on that kind of thing. Whereas I did think that I'm good because I'm a journalist. I have a good sense of what gets talked about a lot and what do I think is important that doesn't get talked about a lot. And I could just ask about that. And now you have the president of the United States talking about something that I think it would be good if people talked about. And this more. kind of like speaks to a way and these questions really don't work and they like why they won't produce the big moment that you want them to because they're exact sort of questions you can prepare for. Like you right. can easily think like, oh, I bet Matt Iglesias or whoever, someone's going to like make this point. But they, just, like, they, they know what the political landmines right. are and it's they so have narrow, their take on it. It's so them. narrow. You can kind of like wrap your head around it, think of what your response is and move on. But these bigger questions, how do you think about it? Like have you been keeping up with things? Those are, you, you can't, Prep those in like 10 minutes. But you can't I, fake your way through those. I really want to push something about the entire sort of perspective animating this discussion, animating both the CNN, CNBC gotcha questions. But even I think, Matt, your argument, when when you sort of make this point for softballs, you're saying, look how well softballs can actually like bean a politician in the face. Look at what happened with Sarah Palin. Look at what happened in these, yeah, in these the other dream. examples. <laughs> and. Look, I think it's great when, uh, as journalists, we're able to show that a politician is unprepared or has gotten something badly wrong or whatever. But I, I actually think that given sort of the opportunity to interview policymakers, it is a weird thing for the entire interview to be animated by the hope that we are going to beat them in some kind of fight. And we have this opportunity that our audience doesn't get unless we take it for them to really show how these people think and how they think about the world and how they assimilate information. And it is completely true that within that, politicians will often make a mistake. So you talked about your interview with Obama. It caused the Obama administration four days of problems. You, you, <laughs> That's true. You that was really dumb. <laughs> de, was it Delhi, Delhi Gate? What was it called? Obama said that there random. had been a shooting, random gate, that there was a random shooting <laughs> in, a, in a deli in Paris when it was a pretty clearly anti-Semitically motivated shooting and that it created this huge, you know, this huge uproar. And then one of the press secretaries screwed up the effort to quell it. And then another press secretary had to come in and like clean up the first press secretary's death. Like it, it was, was great. more so than most interviews with Obama. Like they actually did get in trouble. But I actually did not think you know, even though I was kind of proud our interview made news, I did not think that that was by any means the most telling part of the interview. I think probably Obama more or less just expressed himself badly in that part. And similarly, I did this interview with Bernie Sanders and we talked about open borders. I don't think he was really ready for that. And he sort of, you know, dismissed it as a Koch brothers plan. And he dismissed it in this way that I thought was really telling. What it implied to me about Sanders, the way he talked about that, was that 
he was not very emotionally pro-immigration. I think the reason the open borders thing ended up creating a couple of days of problems for him, which was not expected by me because open borders is not in the political discussion really at all, but was it the way he discussed it upset people who were pretty pro-immigration because I think a lot they they sensed in there that maybe in his gut, his orientation here was not that sort of immigrants are good and we should have as many of them as we possibly can given the political constraints. Well, I actually saw a good, there was a good a good recent piece about this with, with Bernie and it was that, you know, he's crafting his immigration proposals and he is obviously the progressive candidate in the race. And to, to our previous discussion, like the progressive stance today is a very pro-immigrant, very pro-immigration one. But for much of Sanders' career, right. that hasn't been the case. And he, not in a cynical flip-floppy way, but in a he is a champion for progressive causes, he has changed his view as the American labor movement has changed their view. But what you caught in that answer was that there's an emotional level on which he's still more in touch with the old view from the 80s and the early 90s that he used to espouse rather than to the new position. That's not just right. his position, and, but the whole movement. And I don't think in any way that I got Bernie Sanders on something. I actually think his answer, with the exception of it being a Koch brothers plot, which I don't think is what open the, the people who support open borders are. But I thought his answer was a perfectly reasonable answer. I mean, he talked about, you know, are we going to have a nation state, et cetera. But I thought it did a good thing of showing people in some kind of deeper way how he thought when confronted with questions about immigration. And I, I guess like this to me is what is just weird about debates, weird about a lot of these interviews. I feel there are a lot of wasted opportunities. We're trying to see, in theory, during the course of a campaign, what are these people going to be like as president? But we are not setting up a test that is at all like what it is like to be president. We are setting up a kind of completely separate murder board run by journalists to some degree for the glory of journalists, instead of letting people unfurl the way they react to information and then letting people see, okay, that's actually not a very flexible thinker or that's actually not a very informed thinker. And to some degree, I think part of the reason is that we don't trust the audience enough to really evaluate it. We are looking for something that everybody agrees is kind of a like we destroyed them. They, they really got taken down here. Instead of being willing to sort of let there be a, a slower, more slightly ponderous debate with the idea that the American people will be interested in this kind of like more lofty policy discussion, but also they'll be able to look and see, okay, I don't really feel comfortable with the way that person makes decisions or, or integrates new information. Right. I mean, I think it kind of speaks to like how the people organizing debates think about who their audience is and like what they want out of that. I think that's a lot of this. I don't think networks see themselves as running this test for like what people would be like as president. I think they see themselves as... You know, especially with the CNBC debate, it felt like creating this entertaining event that I think, you know, might not to be like too cynical, but the goal is to get a lot of people yeah, to watch it. It's not to create like the best, you know, replication of what it's like if all these candidates would be in the Oval Office. So I think it speaks, I don't know, probably a separate discussion, like what actually people want out of these, you know, what the audience wants, but at least speaks the type of questions being asked, I think, speak a lot to like what type of things they think their audience wants like Fox News launching their debate at the beginning with like Trump about, um, you know, what he pledged not to run as an independent. It's like this attempt to create drama. And that seems to be the 
goal of what's going right. on. And, and one thing I do think, to, to go back to the CNBC debate itself, so I went through and I looked at the first round of questions, the ones leading up to Ted Cruz attacking the moderators. I looked at those questions and I compared them to the corresponding question in each of the other debates. And I do think it's fair to say the CNBC debate was it was a little more, particularly at the top, dismissive and mocking of the Republican candidates and other debates have been. But as you went through it, that, that really didn't persist. It happened very early on and then kind of it went away. It wasn't more hostile and it wasn't less substantive. It was actually more substantive and it wasn't more interested in causing fights. But what was very notable about it was that the other three debates, when they asked their kind of tough gotcha questions – they did it very implicitly around electability. A lot of the questions were basically, here's this thing about you. Doesn't it make it so you're not going to win the presidency? And what framing everything around electability does is it actually puts you in sympathy with the party these people come from, right? If you're asking Hillary Clinton whether she can win the presidency, on the one hand, you're asking a hard question of Hillary Clinton, maybe even a mean question of Hillary Clinton, if you're saying, won't you say anything to win an election? But on the other hand, you're kind of presenting yourself as a spokesperson for the Democratic Party, because the Democratic Party really needs a candidate who can win. Same thing on the Republican side. Electability concerns in some weird way in journalism are allowed. You're allowed as an objective journalist to believe Mitt Romney is a wooden candidate or Al Gore is a wooden candidate or Marco Rubio or Barack Obama are charismatic speech givers or Hillary Clinton struggles with authenticity. What CNBC did was they actually asked a bunch of very skeptical questions about policy and, and people's records. And they did so not from the perspective of a Republican concerned about whether these people can win, but a kind of business journalist concerned about whether these tax plans made any sense. And on the one hand, I think that's actually a much better line of questioning. But on the other, it took them out of sympathy with the party and, and created this very, very big backlash. And I think it speaks to a very weird thing in, in journalism where you're allowed to say Mitt Romney is a bad candidate, but not that he's a bad tax plan. Or you can say that Hill Clinton is inauthentic, but you're not allowed to say that Hill Clinton's healthcare ideas are stupid. Mm -hmm. And I think that CNBC, because business journalism doesn't always play by those same rules, it, it's often much more opinionated than political journalism when it comes to policies and, and, and things of that nature ended up writing a bunch of questions that didn't feel to them different, but in some subtle way really were. But let me also say, uh, ch channeling something I've, I've heard from people working in TV news production about uh, sort of my, my criticism of this, is that a concern that exists when you're having Republicans debates specifically is that I think the, the television producers feel that Sanders and Clinton will argue with each other about the premises of each other's respective policies, right? That if Sanders says something like, well, we're going to have a $60 an hour minimum wage and it's going to be awesome, that Hillary Clinton will challenge him on that. But that they feel that specifically on the tax matters, that even though the Republicans' tax plans differ from one another, that nobody on the Republican side is going to challenge the fundamental premise that a gigantic tax cut can be implemented without any kind of like noteworthy disruptions in people's lives. And that the only way to get that notion on the table is to ask some form of the kind of argumentative questions that CNBC got at. And I do think that that's true. I mean, all things considered, I would say you sort of got to let it lie. It is a real true fact that the American people should know about the Republican Party, that even though the more mainstream candidates don't endorse Ben Carson's 10 percent flat tax, that they're not really that 
interested in challenging the sort of conceptual premises behind it. And I think people should actually see that rather than be be told it. I think maybe it's time for another word from our sponsor. This week's episode of The Weeds is also sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Audible content includes over 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine newspaper publishers, and business information providers. You know, I've, I've been uh, uh, listening to some books lately, and one thing I thought I might get into is try to find myself a, a good history of the Cold War, delve into the weeds of that. Instead, I saw an ad for the new James Bond movie, and I, I got um, From Russia with Love, one of the the old Ian Fleming books. It's got a sort of a, a classy British narrator to go with your, your classy 1950s spy story. Uh, you know, so that's a great one to check out, um, you know, or something more topical and, and relevant and weedsy if that's what you're into. So if you're interested in that book or any other, just check out audible.com slash weeds and you'll get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day free trial membership. So there is a paper that came out. It's actually from the Nobel Prize winner in economics this year basically showing that mortality, deaths from middle-aged white men are on the rise, and we don't fully understand what's going on there. And there's just this striking chart. I was reading through the paper. It's pretty short. We'll put it in show notes. It's only six pages. But there's a striking chart on the second page that shows this is like a uniquely American experience. And you can see for all other similar countries, France, Germany, Canada, Australia, the death rates are marching down slowly for middle-aged white men. And then in the United States, since 1999, they've been going up. And it's a very tro- And it's been going down for Latinos and for African Americans. Yes, it's been going down for other groups. And it's definitely concentrated among lower educated white middle-aged men that you've seen this market increase. In de- it's both deaths and sickness that people report worse health in these years than they did yeah. a decade ago. And it's this very troubling and surprising finding that kind of took health. There's been some rumblings, you know, of changes in longevity and what's happening. But this finding is so stark that healthcare researchers have really been comparing it to something similar to the AIDS epidemic, that it's very shocking to see these big changes. And just to, you know, unpack this a little bit more, what's really going on is an increase in three things, an increase in poisonings, an increase in suicides, and an increase in chronic liver disease are the three things that are really driving up deaths. And a lot of those group. poisonings are alcohol poisoning. A lot of those alcohol, yeah. alcohol poisonings and, and, and possibly opioids, opioids yeah, as well as another and, and area. It's actually that is what I thought was so surprising about it. When I first saw the headline... I was like, okay, I get it. And then I read the lead and I was like, okay, I get it. And I kept waiting (laughs) for the point where it was to be like, ironically, America, the richest society on earth and middle-aged white people, the most self-satisfied kind of rich Americans are killing themselves because they're getting too fat. Right. I just like I I knew this was the part where my motivated reasoning was like trucking. Like I knew what this paper (laughs) said. And then it doesn't say that. And it actually says the opposite. The deaths from diabetes among this cohort are slightly down. And that's not quite they're slightly up. Okay. But up much, much slower. But but it's not diabetes. It's not heart disease. It's not some kind of affluenza thing. It's drinking, literally offing yourself. And this poisonings, and, which looks like it's mostly heroin and it prescription. Looks like, yeah. It's so, so, drugs yeah. So, so it's like three different ways, basically, of feeling sad and killing yourself. <laughs> right. And it's paired with, this is what's fascinating, which is that, you know, when the prescription opiate abuse story 
first started breaking through. I think there was a lot of sort of presumption that, well, what's going on here is that people are cheating the system, right? They want to get high, so they're getting these painkillers. And there's also been something going on where uh, disability rates have been going up. And I think there's been a lot of presumption there that that is also, on some level, people cheating the system. The economy's weak, so people are going on disability. But one of the things that they find in here is that in addition to people killing themselves with prescription painkillers and just killing themselves and killing themselves by drinking to death is that people are saying that they are feeling more pain. Right. Right? Like a like a there's a lot more chronic pain, specifically in the same demographic groups. Well, yeah, and one wrinkle I want to add to this. So the increase in deaths is concentrated among lower educated, middle aged white men. However, the increase in suicides and poisonings, that's showing up across all educational income attainment. The thing that's happening with higher income men is that decreases in deaths from other sort of things is masking a change. So it's essentially a wash. But this increase in suicides, this increase in drinking and drug overdoses, that is across the board happening really at every income and education level among 45 to 55-year-old white men. So the big question is whether Ezra and I are fractionally Hispanic enough (laughs) (laughs) to avoid imminent death. I, I think, and I would like a, an official weed like ruling yes, on, that. on that. One of one of the hard things about this paper is that we we know why, but we don't know why, right? We can say it breaks down to poisonings, it breaks down to suicide, etc. We can say exactly who it is. We can say there's more pain, but there are a lot of questions about what would be motivating because these are big trends. I mean, these are big and these are unique trends. It is among this group and and it is not among any other group like this in America or any other other group in any other developed country that we know of for that, Mm -hmm. uh, I should say. You know, so I've been reading some, there's a a good piece by Paul Starr, who's a Princeton sociologist, a former editor of, of Mad and Mine at the American Prospect, where he talks about, you know, the ways in which the economy might be playing into this, the ways in which this particular group of people, which was on top of the economy a generation ago, they feel themselves being worse off than their parents. They feel themselves as potentially being having having failed in a fundamental way as seeing the future being a sort of aging into a kind of destitution. And, you know, that might be motivating some of this pain. And while the, some of those same economic trends are present in Europe, the much more expansive social safety net and sort of different cultural attitudes towards achievement might be blunting this. But it's hard because I just genuinely, I don't know what's going on. You never want to say that as a journalist, Mm -hmm. but I look at this and it is such a tremendously striking finding. One thing it reminds me of, though, is that it is related to, I think, the fallacy of treating too much of health outcomes as the product of health care. Whatever is going on here is much more broadly public health. It looks to me to be at least partially economic. If we are going to sort of turn these numbers around, we are going to have to address things that probably aren't really happening in hospitals and doctor's offices. Mm -hmm. It's not about getting people on diabetes medication. It's about some kind of deeper level, either satisfaction with their lives or some kind of deeper level, how are they living over a period of decades to get into a position where they have so much chronic pain, they're getting on opioid painkillers. One thing I thought about, and it's possible this is just proximity, but I wrote a piece yesterday on great news website, Vox.com, by... um, David Roberts, who was writing about this difficulty of making adult friendships. And he was writing about, you know, a lot of the different changes in how we live that make it much more difficult to get to know people. And there's 
a very decent body of research kind of looking at the health outcomes of loneliness and isolation, suggesting that it can be very detrimental. A lot of this research is on elderly Americans who can end up very isolated just due to their lack of mobility. You know, one of the things Dave wrote about in his piece, and I think it's possibly just because I'm reading all of this at once, was how a lot of the ways we live now, more suburbs, less walkable cities, it's much more difficult to have these spontaneous interactions with folks that create acquaintances that eventually create friendships that create this whole network. And And families move away. And families move away. It's harder to get to know people. He was citing some interesting research about how, you know, what seems to determine whether an acquaintance becomes a friend is how much spontaneous interaction you have with them, how much you just see them in random situations. And I was thinking about that as one, obviously, you know, like Ezra, I'm going to say, I don't don't know what's going on here, but it's possible, you know, this isolation. I'm curious, Matt, you write a little more about urban policy than Ezra and I do. I don't know if this is mirrored internationally or it doesn't show up as much, but I was thinking about whether... This increased isolation is possible and this increased loneliness that people might be experiencing is tethering to these trends we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that would be worth looking at because one thing I did see initially was a, a lot of liberals, you know, as we've been the whole theme of the episode, try to assimilate this into their overarching thing, which is that, you know, since midway through the Ronald Reagan administration, liberals have been saying, oh, no, 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 wages are stagnant, right? So everything is explained by by wage stagnation. So somehow this is a story about wage. Segmentation, except it's not like African-Americans and Latinos have suddenly become richer than white people. In fact, quite the opposite. And in the the short term, the times we're looking at, because of the specific dynamics of the housing crisis and things like that, there's actually a much, much, much more negative impact on African-American wealth. This sort of nascent black middle class really like literally mortgaged their futures on housing bubble prices and have seen it totally, totally wiped out. I mean, with negative social and psychological consequences. And yet... It has not been a large-scale surge in heroin addiction, which is a very specific response to things. So I do think it would be worth looking more narrowly at some things that make America different from European countries, but that also separate how working-class white people are living from how working-class African-American Latino people are living. And I do think the structure of the built environment is probably a big differentiator there. There are many low-income white people in the United States and low-income non-white people, but the urban-rural split you know, among those racial divides is is quite big and pretty systematic. You don't see, if you say like a poor, quote unquote, inner city neighborhood, there's, there's not white people living in that neighborhood. So, you know, I do think that's like plausible and maybe something that should be looked into. But also something that we know from larger public health research on drug use and drug addiction is that there's an element of just faddishness to those kind of things. Mm -hmm. That if you try to look at the like deep structural reasons for why when I was in sixth grade, everyone had slap bracelets, there isn't one, right? It's just certain kinds of people get into doing certain kinds of stuff. And and you definitely see this with different kinds of drugs, right? People don't make super well-informed, rational decisions about the relatively lethality of like different kinds of illicit substances they could get into. And, you know, it may be that this kind of opioid boom among white people in the aughts has no 
particular deep cause. I mean, we can look at its microstructure, but it just sort of happens to be the case that opioids caught on in this one kind of segment of the population and and not elsewhere at one particular time. And it's just true that opioids uh, lead to a lot of deaths and also that we didn't handle the public policy around. I mean, we handled the growth in prescription drug abuse in a way that rather than reducing abuse, caused more people to do heroin, which was like a a huge sort of policy fiasco, but is also very, very narrow, right? Like this is such a big trend that it would be nice for people to like link it up with other big trends. But like maybe we could have gone in a different direction by just handling the initial substance abuse differently. One thing I think this speaks to at least a little bit is what kinds of information we actually know about America and what kinds of information we don't. We've talked on the show before about what sorts of data we collect and and how well we, we target that data. I can tell you a lot at the county level, at the city level, about economic statistics. I can tell you about unemployment. I can tell you about GDP. I can tell you about all kinds of things that are happening to, to a pretty micro level in terms of how well different areas of the economy are doing economically. I cannot tell you much about how happy people are. And it's not because that is somehow non-collectible statistics. I mean, you can literally just ask people. It's in many ways easier than finding out how many people are unemployed. But we don't collect those kinds of numbers. We don't look at things like life satisfaction. and Or chronic pain. Chronic pain mm-hmm. is another good one. And, you know, there have been discussions about how to do that. Actually, one of the things, you don't hear him talk about it on the trail, but Martin O'Malley has actually had a lot of interest as governor of Maryland in trying to create alternative statistics to measuring societal trajectory to GDP, things that are more holistic. I haven't looked so deeply into his particular measures that I can tell you if they're if they're good or bad. But Joe Stiglitz, the, the Nobel Prize winning economist, has done a lot of work on this as well. And you could imagine a world where we had much better data about, you know, how people in rural Missouri were feeling about their lives. And that might give us some kind of information about what's going on here, because, you know, either we could see if sort of the death rates and particularly in these three problems we're tracking against things like happiness or chronic pain or whatever. But we just don't, as a country, collect that data in a continuous, rigorous way such that we can track it and really think about how to make policy on it. There is no equivalent to the Bureau of Labor Statistics for mental health, for life mm-hmm. satisfaction, even for, for for just sort of how we feel about our lives. And I do think that I do think that's a problem. I think that we are over-indexed towards economic information and how we make policy and under-indexed towards how people live their lives and how happy they are with them. And it isn't because the government is not the thing that can make you happy, but that kind of information can at least help us see problems that some of them, if not all of them, might have policy solutions or at least policies that can ameliorate them. And the, you know, the poisonings that Matt was talking about, I have like an easier time wrapping my head around like a narrative mm-hmm. of what's going on there that we can talk about drug overdose crisis. We can talk about heroin. We can kind of like piece together these things that have happened. It's this big rise in suicides. That's the part I find, you know, most troubling and upsetting about this study and the part that I have the most difficulty wrapping my head around. Like, where is that coming from? I know Dylan Matthews has written a little or written, written a lot about the relationship between access to guns and suicide. Like, is that part of the story? Or is it this, like, very amorphous thing about, you know, how Americans feel about their life and some dissatisfaction that is getting bigger and bigger among this particular 
demographic and what's driving that. That's the one where I just, you know, it's like very difficult for me to think of a narrative of like what changed about 15 years ago. And, and is the suicide problem tied into the drug problem? I mean, you mm-hmm. often, I mean, suicide is definitely, people are at higher risk of suicide when they feel trapped by drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and I do think it's interesting in this particular age band, because one thing we do know about happiness is that not as a, as a trend matter, but sort of across time and place is that those sort of late 40s and, and 50s tend to be the, the sort of saddest time in people's lives. It, it tends to be an emotional low point. And so it's it's sort of particularly tragic to see people lost to self-destructiveness at that point in their lives, because, you know, regardless of sort of individual people, it most likely uh, it would turn around if you sort of make it through your mid-50s. That one thing is that we know people feel better about their economic situation if they're struggling once they become old enough to be considered retired, that it's much, much better to be retired than to be unemployed, and it's much better to be retired than to be in a job that you hate and is causing you, uh, you know, physical or, or mental pain and stress, and that people start reconnecting with family members oftentimes. They find it easier to, like, let go of things that may have alienated them. So it's a, a time when you you don't want to be losing people to just a kind of a, a sense of, of distress and sadness about themselves and, and their lives. You know, to, to Ezra's point, I'm, I mean, I'm glad we can always bring this back to the limits of census survey data. Um, <laughs> no, You're you know, but it's, but it's interesting because we, we rely a lot on this census economic data, which if you listen to last week's episode, you'll see is actually not very high quality data because it's based on surveys and there's better ways to measure how much money people have than calling them up and asking them. But there isn't really a better way to find out you know, how people are feeling than calling them up and asking them. So as long as we have this big program dedicated to conducting large-scale detailed surveys of America, it it does really seem like we should get many more of these subjective issues on them and rely on different sources for basic income. I don't think there's a better way to end an episode on the weeds than on a call for census reform. A call for action to census quality sounds about (laughs) right. Uh, Thank you all. I mean, depressing uh, and scary, but fun. This has been another episode of The Weeds, of Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Uh, thanks to our producer, I see Valdez, and to our sponsors for this week, Audible and Squarespace. I'm Matthew Iglesias with Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Thank you for listening.